This is the Athletic Lab Sport Performance Podcast, episode number 10. This episode features legendary track and field coach Dan Paff. Dan is the head jumps and multi-events coach at Altus in Phoenix, Arizona. Dan has coached multiple Olympic medalists, including 100-meter gold medalist and world record holder Donovan Bailey, and the most recent medalist in long jumper Greg Rutherford. He has also coached at many dominant collegiate track and field programs, including LSU, University of Texas, and University of Florida. Dan, thank you for joining us on the Athletic Lab Sport Performance Podcast. Um, just give the listeners who aren't familiar with you, I'm sure there's not too many of them, but how you got your start in coaching and give us some highlights of your career. Well, I, I started out as a volunteer coach at a small school in Ohio where I went to high school. So, And that was back in the day when you coached whatever sport was in season. So I was an offensive line coach, a wrestling coach, uh, always worked in track and field. But it started out as a classroom teacher slash coach uh, in rural Ohio. And 45 years, it's been quite a journey. I've worked at universities and training centers and internationally all over the world, been very blessed. Uh, to get more specifically into the training questions here, um, in regards to changes you've made in programming over the years, uh, in speaking with you slightly prior to this, you said that your ideas on volumes and intensities really haven't changed much, but your ideas on densities have. So no. to, to kind of preface, I guess the question is, is, are you referring to density as the frequency in like the, how, how often you can prevent, uh, present loads to an athlete or specific loads to an athlete? Yes. So for me, density is how frequently you would do something. Uh, so the various KPIs or training menu items that you list or entertain or explore, how frequently would you do that? So I think it's quite common people have a density of three major lifting sessions a week, for example, or a jumper might do two to three jump-specific workouts a week. So that's what I refer to as density. And it could be in a micro sense, too, you know, like how many times a day do you train a particular menu item? Okay. And then so to go further along in that question, um, uh, if I guess if you, you're talking about your, your ideas of changing in density here, uh, if you drop volume too much, at least uh, previous stuff I've read of yours is on certain light items, if you drop volume too much, you may not meet the threshold for developing certain skills um, so that you found manipulating densities to be a better way to navigate around the idea of, uh, of manipulating training. Can you talk a little bit more about that idea? Well, I think some menu items or so, some entities don't lend themselves very well to manipulation. So like acceleration, I'm not sure what you would get out of doing an 80% acceleration. You know, you got to have a certain intensity threshold or you're, not, or you're training something else. doesn't mean it's bad, but you're not training what you say you're training. 
And I think some entities, the volume doesn't differentiate greatly. There's a certain threshold you need as a stimulus for adaptation or maintenance. And if you undersell that, you're not really getting correct stimulation. If you overdo it, you can drift from overreaching to overtraining real quick. So in power speed sports, I find that there's a lot of entities that, in my experience, density is the only way I have to modulate uh, load using a, you know, an entity principle, if you will. Sure. And then in, in, if we're talking about particular units here, so maybe a week, a month, or even a year, how do yep. you, I guess there's so many different uh, menu items that you can change, but I guess as you move closer to a competition, do your densities decrease as you move along, or how does that fluctuate with what quality we're, we're talking about? Well, I think it's quality specific. I think it's athlete specific. Uh, it's time of the competitive year. There are a lot of variables. I hate to use ironclad examples. You know, I've had world-class athletes that can train two or three days a week in season and they're fine. I've had other athletes, if you tried that, they would detrain or there would be psychological ramifications. So I think you have to experiment during the training year to find out what kind of densities work best with athletes, like during unload weeks or unload cycles, uh, to start formulating some ideas on how you're going to manipulate or design density patterns deep in the competitive season. Yeah, I think you, you brought up one point that kind of stems into another question is the psychological aspect of changing training is maybe we know from a physiological standpoint that something works but maybe for an athlete from a psychological standpoint they feel like they need a certain amount of something to be at their best how do you kind of determine that with each athlete um, you know over time well I think at the beginning of every training year you have meetings where you sit down and you identify KPI factors for that athlete for that event discipline or that sport and then you rank those KPI factors in a hierarchy, if you will. And through the training year, the, the hierarchical rankings may change. Some of the KPIs may drop out because of mastery. But, you know, in general, there's always going to be a few K keep KPIs that are, you know, transcendent through the whole career. Like, you know, a, a thrower has to throw. <laughs> so, you know, certain technical components of throwing are always going to be in there. It's a, it's a KPI. I don't know too many world-class throwers that don't throw or reduce throwing to like once a week in season. So some of these are dictated by the event discipline. I think one area that people sometimes overlook is competition trains everything. And I think a lot of times people don't really ergonomically analyze competition on what's going on uh, in terms of their KPI list or the hierarchy of those KPIs. Sure. Is there any other ideas that come to mind in regards to training that maybe haven't worked out worked uh, over the years, or maybe that have some that stood the long haul? Anything come to mind? Well, I think when I was a younger coach, you know, using my research and study and classic periodization models, I'd say if anything. Uh, my mesocycles were way too long, and they were way too involved, and they were probably way too static. So as I've aged and researched and, and done pattern recognition for training response, 
I think I've drifted to shorter micros and mesos and probably more design rest within those and between those. Okay, and so in working with uh, you know many many athletes that you had uh, over the course of your career, um, you start to understand their individual strengths and weaknesses in regards to physiological and anatomical. So, um, and in a recent uh, blog on it either was free lap or simply faster, uh, your idea is to exploit these athletes' strengths and, and potentially bring weaknesses up as you go. Now. I guess, assuming weaknesses don't get in the way of the actual performance, how do you improve weaknesses and is that something that you actually try to improve within an athlete's career or year or whatever unit we're talking about? Well, I think that I'm kind of a spectral guy, I'm not an absolutist, so uh, I think identifying strengths and weaknesses you know, falls under that KPI analysis window. If the weakness is glaring, like it's a mechanical weakness that's causing injury or gross inefficiency, of course you have to go to work on it. And it has to be a priority in the KPI hierarchy. I think people that probably promote working strengths and slowly filling in the gap with weaknesses are probably alluding to that effect. But, you know, I think you have to be realistic. If you have certain weaknesses that are glaring, like if your absolute strength levels are terrible and you aspire to be a 100-meter sprinter, you know, you've got to deal with the absolute strength deficit. Now, does that mean you, you stop all the, the presses and all you do is work on absolute strength? Absolutely not. But I think the density of that kind of menu item would be greater if you've identified it as a huge gap. So I think some of this is in trend analysis of what are strengths and what are weaknesses. I think there's a tendency in coaching, I think it's easy to see weaknesses and gaps and get busy on those and forget that, you know, the athlete's pretty good for a reason and, uh, you know, we've got to polish the car, so to speak, with their strengths or they lose confidence or they lose interest or a lot of times we interfere with the overall adaptation process uh, working on weaknesses is very demanding emotionally, mentally, and physiologically. I think it's more demanding than working on strengths. So I think not only is there psychological and emotional cost, but there's also physiological cost if you scare yourself to just working on weakness. Sure, and I, I think uh, it seems in the coaching realm, at least some, they're all looking for this symmetrical athlete, an athlete that has equal qualities across the board. And I think, you know, one thing you said is an athlete is, is good for a reason. And they are, they, they, they compete at their best because of their strengths, not because you're improving their weaknesses. So to kind of move on from there, in terms of like specific work, uh, I know you're a big fan of staying pretty specific throughout the year, or at least that's what I understand. Um, as an athlete progresses over the course of their career, um, or even say the year, the shift to specific and maybe even what some would consider hyper-specific is probably warranted. With the idea of being general in the year and very specific at times in the year, uh, what are some ways you protect against some overuse stuff when you are being very specific over the course of the year? I think, first of all, I'd like to say that 
during this KPI analysis, you have to determine if there's physical literacy, both general, globally, and specifically. And I think that there's a tendency to be polemic in this, like everything's got to be specific and transfer versus, you know, do we build foundations of fundamental skills and essentials? Uh, so I think you have to surf those regions first before you even get into the discussion of specificity and transfer. In terms of overtraining, I think that, or uh, overuse, I think that if you've done a good job identifying hierarchies and ranking those hierarchies and you've worked really hard at determining density patterns and work-to-rest ratios on these menu items, um, the tendency to overtrain or get overuse is not there. I personally think injuries result in four schemes, programming, uh, medical inputs, lifestyle, and mechanics. So I, I can't always just put it down to programming. And one, one thing you said uh, in previous uh, kind of writings back and forth is um, you said I still, or you said I think way too many are still doing, coaches anyway, are still doing work that is too general and that there is a lack of accountability on, for technique on all menu items in the program in general. Can you talk uh, maybe a little bit more on that particular topic? Well, I think it. I think there's some debates out there, you know, so, so many people are into this self-organization theory and whatnot. I mean, we still have to teach fundamental physical literacies and essentials of movements. I think the jury's out on how random things really need to be for adaptation. I think it's sport-specific and probably developmental-specific. You know, I understand the thought train and, and, and the ideas and the arguments, but you know, does this athlete have fundamental skill levels globally as an athlete and if that's specific? You know, if you, if you don't have those principles in place, um, I, I don't see how you're going to organize training or teaching. Secondly, I think that we have to define models of better movement as opposed to poor movement. So whether you agree that there is a biomechanical model or not, I think there are trends and tendencies and characteristics that good movers in that sport exhibit. And so knowing what those movement patterns and schemes, landmarks, kinematics, kinetics are, I think you have to teach towards those. And I think a lot of people are conversant on what's involved, but I don't know that a lot of coaches demand high accountability to those models and to those progressions. And I think sometimes we get so caught up uh, looking at esoteric values or general values, you know, we, we lose sight uh, of the intent. Sure, and you, you talked a little bit about uh these mechanical models of whatever sport we're speaking of, there's obviously uh, you know a model that we'd want to start at. Now, every with every athlete, whether they're anatomical constraints or whatever it may be, might not be able to hit these mechanical models, or at least perfectly. So how would you kind of, what process would you take to start them at the mechanical model and then deviate, uh, or, or when would you deviate from that? Yeah, it's a good question, a complex question, probably a PhD in itself. I, I think there are gross movement patterns and gross kinematic landmarks that we see in excellent people. 
I, I think we can also see a lot of those landmarks in youth when they're just doing youth activities. So to me, it's a spectrum. It's like what a youngster's just beginning out hit versus, you know, the best person in the world. And somewhere on that spectrum you have to be um, in patterning or, or you're going to be inefficient or you increase the risk of injury rates. So you don't see too many people running 100 meters, whether it's the youth level or at the elite level, with their hands rigid by their shoulders, not swinging their arms. There's some kind of arm angulation for people who run fast, whether it's a field sport, a court sport, um, you know, track and field or what have you. So I think that we can find some general movement pathways and joint angulations that are common denominators for efficient movement in sport tasks. And I think that's where, where you start out is defining what is the spectrum, where are we at developmentally, where's our physiological support systems allow us to execute. You know, will a eight-year-old kid running a, a day school program sprint with the same arm angulation as an Olympic finalist? No. But you will see the arm swing within the shoulder joint. You will see the elbow angulate. Uh, you'll see certain block positions. So I think you're safe in teaching those fundamental, essential kinematic landmarks. Sure. And if if you are, say, a coach looking for these uh, mechanical models, um, are you looking mainly from research? Or are you mainly taking a, a group of individuals that have made it at a very high level? How are you coming up with... Are they your mechanical models, or are you looking at, at a group of individuals that have come up with uh, these models? Well, I think it's a layered process. I think you look at the research and the elite, but you know, I also study <clears throat> adaptive sport athletes. I explore neighborhood kids, age three, four, five, six. I, I film everything I see, whether it's a little league game or uh, your driveway basketball game to look at how kids move, how they're affecting movement, who's the best in that group, who's second best. and So I do inter-athlete study and intra-athlete study. So taking an individual athlete and looking at these movement characteristics throughout the training year or throughout the week, you know, whatever timeline you want to do. Inter-athlete ranges from Paralympians, adaptive sport athletes, to the world's best. Looking at age group, looking at neighborhoods, kids, looking at various sporting activities, whether it's organized or unorganized. I love to film and analyze kids playing in the park in unorganized activity and see what are they doing? What, what are these limbs doing? Where is their center of mass? How are they coping with movement? Who's a good mover? Who's an efficient mover? Who's a poor mover? So you develop a spectrum of movements. So, you know, we could walk backwards, but we've elected to walk forwards. And there's some people that can walk backwards really fast. But through time, we've figured out, hey, it's probably better, more efficient, and healthier to walk forward. Because generally, we want to see what we're going to walk into. Now, you talk about uh, a lot of youth athletes and, and looking at what they do. Um, a lot of times, and, and I put myself in this camp a little bit, is I look at 
what the group of, of best athletes are doing and try to use a trickle-down effect. Maybe not to the same extent as the elites are doing it, but if you found, because you're looking at youth athletes, you find that there's, you're looking at youth athletes and using some stuff you found from there into the elite realm, or, or does it not necessarily work in the reverse order? Well, I, I think there's essentials to movement. And I, I don't think these essentials pay attention to how old you are, what sex you are, what gender you are, what continent on the planet you know, you're working in. So I think essentials are essentials, and um, you know whether it's top down or bottom up, I, I think essentials are essentials. So my interest is more in defining what are the essentials, what is the baseline physical literacy needed for a sporting movement. And when you are looking at your individual athletes um, and, and trying to determine where to make a technical correction, are you? You obviously have to take into account at what stage the athlete is in, um, but are you looking at uh, a certain bandwidth of error? Uh, of this, if they're outside of this certain bandwidth that you're looking at, that you correct it, or, or do you involve, or do you actually let the athlete make a few errors along the way, or how do you kind of uh, uh, handle that? Well, it depends. Um, like you said, stage of career. What injuries are we battling? Uh, how ingrained is the faulty habit? How does change affect this athlete's confidence? Uh, what does it do to other KPI factors, kinematic key factors? So, you know, I've made the mistake where we, we've identified a, a serious KPI factor that needs correcting biomechanically. We've gone to work at it. The athletes fall in. Everybody's in on the project. We get it corrected, and the performance drops like a rock and never rebounds because it interrupted some kind of processing that we don't have the expertise or the technology to figure out where that came from. So I think it's a fluid hypothesis chess game, if you if you will, whenever you're deciding to affect change. I think there is a, a misnomer out there that if you change a major kinematic factor that health and efficiency automatically rises. That's not been my experience. It's a, it's a long meandering process and it's, it's seldom instantaneous. Now, there, if there's some really gross mechanical misunderstandings or misconceptions, I've had seen people pick it up in just a few reps. I don't think that 10,000 hour rule applies. You know, I've, I've had athletes come in where you explain your belief system or your idea of the mechanics of, of, of the movement, they try it out a few times and are like, wow, that was so simple. Why didn't somebody tell me that years ago? So I think it depends, and it's, it's built on a myriad of uh, rationales and experiences. And at the end of the day, we're, you know, we have to create hypotheses and run them. Sure. Yeah, it makes. I mean, every athlete is different. I, I, I always. Uh, it's funny when we have discussions, you know, amongst our coaches. It's the the answer always comes down to it's athlete dependent, and that's always I always like. Oh, that's a crappy answer, but it's true. You know, at the same time. Um, well, I, I think the big litmus test for me, if there's chronic injury resulting from this biomechanical flaw, or the the data shows it's such a gross inefficient movement then you got to go to work on it you know I, I don't want to imply it's la la land here you know we're just laissez-faire 
I mean, there are some movement schemes or ideas or concepts that are deadly. They're just going to keep recreating injury, uh, promote chronic injury, uh, increase in severity of acute onset of injury. And some of these movement variables are, are so bad that the inefficiency is glaring. So you have to go to work on those things. Sure. And obviously it would be dependent on what the technical issue is here that we're talking about. But how much are, are you devoting, in terms of the entire training plan, Would if you had to give a percentage of time spent uh, trying to work on that technical uh, problem, what would you say you devote to doing that? Well, you know, it's very dependent on athlete timing, your stage of career, so on and so forth. Plus, you know, when you've been at it a long time, you kind of know, like, I've seen this virus, this mistake before, so you kind of have a timeline in your back of your head of how long it's taken to change this in a variety of athletes. You know, like I said, some athletes, you can explain it, they can experiment a few trials and they got it. I've had other kids three years later still working on it. You're still chipping away because we don't know what secretes and secures some of these movement principles in the mind and the body. So, you know, we're guessing at best on how to blow it up and rewire it. And is, is there ever, with that said, you know, if you've got an athlete that's it's taken years for them to make a very small change, is there a, a point at which you say, okay, this is this is what they know how to do, and this is what they have been doing, and this is what we'll have to work with. Yeah, all the time. But like I said just a, a few seconds ago, if it's creating injuries or it's a super gross, inefficient movement, then we're going to still hammer away sure, at it. Sure. So you do. You have to do a cost-benefit analysis on a lot of these decisions. And, overlying with a timeline factor. So if I'm a university coach, I've got this kid for four years, and I know it's a six-year project, do you even play? Right. Yeah, makes, uh, that makes a lot of sense. If, if, uh, of course, that would, that would involve you, the coach knowing how long that error takes to correct, which yeah. that takes yeah. a lot of time to figure out as well. Um, to, to, to kind of go back on the programming side of things, um, I think over the over the years, your approach has probably turned into a far more flexible program. Is that correct? Oh, for sure. <laughs> um, and, and that it seems it seems at times you are like a day by day kind of fly fly by the seat of the pants, depending on what happens on the day. Now, of course, you understand where you want that program to go, and you have a, a plan in place. Um, but of course, deviating when necessary. So, are there any key factors you look for to make that deviation, and how much to deviate? Yeah, I, first, you know, I don't want it to come across that people just come out and do whatever they want to do or whenever they want to do it. I mean, there are certain essential KPIs that have to be trained within certain periods of time, and if that doesn't happen, you, you're going to pay a price. Uh, for example, we may have an acceleration workout schedule, athlete shows up, uh, energy levels low, or fighting an injury factor or something. So how do we go to plan B for acceleration? Do we shift to an adaptive gait pattern, you know, like dribbling or using related exercises like scissor bounding or something of that effect? Uh, would we go to plan C where we do the workout on a bike, on a stationary bike? 
So the theme's still going to play. Like our adaptation to training programming doesn't mean we throw it away or don't do it. It's like how can we do it, still get the physiological effect, but at reduced physiological cost, you know, structurally. So, you know, whether it's jumping or acceleration or speed or certain lifts or throws or what have you, we're going to do that as prescribed. If the athlete has injury or energetic factors that through the school of hard knocks we figured out, hey, it's not a good idea to do plan A, we're going to go to a, a very smart plan B or a very smart plan C. I feel if we have to cancel the workout, then we've blown it along the way. We, we failed to monitor and discuss and debrief uh, leading into it. If we get to a point where an athlete comes and they can't train that day, everybody on the performance staff, in my mind, has dropped the ball that we arrived at that point. When you have, uh, I, I guess, athletes that uh you know, can't train, you're looking for plan B to be as close to plan A as possible or plan C to be close to plan B and A. Um, are, are there any times where, say, for example, if uh, an athlete can't sprint or can't be out on the track that day where you make up the volume in the weight room or how are you making up those differences in, in training? Are you trying to do the same amount? Oh, for, for example, if we've got a speed workout and they can't do classical speed training we may go to an adaptive gait thing so you know a dribble over the ankle or a dribble over the calf where there's less displacement uh, we may shift to a scissor bound or a, a skipping exercise with a certain cadence if ground support irritates then we, we our next line of defense would be do this on a bike use an adaptive seat height uh, a unique resistance or unique work to rest ratio uh, to try to replicate the stressors that we would have gotten on the track if that fails like say the limb is so bad well we might go to a single leg bike workout put the affected limb up out of the way uh, say that's not even possible we may go to a hand crank dynamometer so we're going to try to stay thematically with the energetics and the physiology of the menu item at hand. So if we were had a thrower lifting and they had an, an arm injury, you know, and, and we have Olympic lift scheduled, then we might go to a single arm Olympic lift, for example. So we're constantly looking at ways, how can we stay super close to the menu item, still get a pretty similar training effect without canceling that menu item. Exactly. You're just trying to match the energy system demands to plan A. Is that correct? Yeah, energy system, hormonal immune axis factors, okay. uh, mental emotional factors. You know, like, you'd be surprised if for a thrower, if they can one-arm snatch, they don't feel like they're getting right way behind. We tell them no Olympics for a week, they're psychologically affected. To go back to the idea of a bike workout, I always find that, you know, interesting, an interesting plan C, D, whatever it may be. How do you think the volumes compare to, say, uh, an actual acceleration if we're talking out, you know, 20, 30 meters or something like that, um, to a bike workout? And how do those volumes compare? Obviously, you can't, it's not quite a one-for-one, one, is it? No, no. 
generally with acceleration type workouts, and a lot of this is dependent on seat height. Do you stand up? Do you use a seat? What kind of resistance? Uh, classically, we use 10 second blast with the timer starting once we're up to the level of movement that we desire. Uh, we use various rest intervals. A lot of this data came out of research we did at the University of Texas uh, w with some of the cycling format programs that they were doing there. I had a grad assistant to work in the uh, in the ERG lab and so we did a lot of cross uh, testing with some of our world-class sprinters and some of the world-class cyclists that were training in Austin at the time. So this has kind of been about a 30-year research project. So we have unique things that we do on the bike for Excel workouts, we have unique things we do for speed workouts, and we have another battery of criteria that we use for alactic. And I mean, we take it all the way up and, and train anaerobic capacities and thresholds on bikes. Generally, you can do quite a bit more on the bike uh, because you're not taking the pounding from the ground reactive forces. Uh, if I had to do a rough cast, on excels, we usually do 2 to 2.5 times the volume of reps that we would have done on the ground. Uh, speed somewhere around 1.5 to 2 times the, the number of reps. When you get into alactics and anaerobic thresholds and capacities and things like that, uh, I don't have a clear pattern for that. A lot of that is done by monitoring the athlete during the workout uh, and comparing that to the monitoring metrics that we have when they're doing it on the ground and trying to keep them uh, copacetic, if you will. And those those monitoring metrics that you're, can you talk a little more about that? What what metrics you're looking at to determine, uh, you know, all of these patterns? Well, it depends on, on the labs you have, the budget you have, and so on and so forth. You know, on heart rate, muscle tone and tension, posture, uh, you know, if, if you got a really good lab, you can collect gases, you could have an open line and analyze various key biomarkers. So it really depends on your budget, the quality of athlete, how important that, that metrical data is to the process. Sure, yeah. And then to go back uh, again to the bike question is uh, seat height. In acceleration, are you looking for a lower seat height relative to a higher seat height when you're doing maybe a little bit more speed work, or is that very dependent. It, it, it depends on their KPIs and injury that you're battery okay. battling, and probably you know some health issues that go beyond. So, uh, or motor programming viruses that you you know you're battling. So, if you have an athlete that struggles with extension qualities, the first four to six steps, then you're going to use a different postural protocol on a bike with that athlete as opposed to one who doesn't. In terms of the, I guess to dig deeper into that question, in terms of the postural uh, bike position, it's something I'm unfamiliar with. Um, can you talk about maybe a couple different bike seat heights and maybe what qualities or postural qualities they are training? Well, for example, say you've got adductor or medial hamstring complaint. Well, you. You know, we found it's better to keep the seat quite a bit lower, don't get to full extension, and use a certain amount of resistance at a certain RPMs, keeps us out of jail with that injury. 
as the athlete is healing, there's remodeling in those structures. We have a systematic way that we raise seed height. And so we play with seed height as the first variable. Once we can hit all ranges of seed height, then we'll start playing with load variables, you know, resistance variables. And then once seed height and resistance variables are being handled and, and mastered, then we'll play with the RPM factor. And once that's over, then we'll look at work to rest ratio factors. So it's kind of a hierarchy that we go through depending on the injury, where the injury is, time of year, sure. injury history of the athlete, so on. Yeah, excellent. Um, well, I, I appreciate your time, Dan. That's kind of what I have for now. I could, if I had, uh, you know, obviously listen to this again, create a whole other list of questions. Um, but I do appreciate the time. Do you, I guess, have any contact information where people can email you or uh, any social media outlets that you want to let people know about? Well, I work at Altus, which is a, a private training center in Phoenix, Arizona. We have a pretty high presence, you know, Twitter and Facebook and so on and so forth. So people are more than welcome to, to go online and, and follow us there. We, we have a variety of social media outlet projects going. So, uh, you yeah, know, it depends on what people are after, really. Excellent. Well, again, Dan, thank you for the time, and uh, hopefully we can talk soon. All right. Thank you.